The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, I'm glad that you've joined us, and as we're in part two of Take Courage, I wanted to just start with uh, showing you this stuffed animal right here. This is a small stuffed animal walrus. I got it when I was a kid at SeaWorld. I think I was on a, a field trip when I was little, and I used my own allowance, and I, I got this. I bought this, and this wasn't necessarily um, a particularly special stuffed animal for me, but it is just one that has somehow survived all of these years, and um, I, I think it was maybe at my parents' house, you know, in a box somewhere, and somehow my kids found it one time when we were over at their house and um, they must have brought it back home to uh, to our house and because all of a sudden they said hey dad what's this and I, I hadn't seen this stuffed animal for years they have their own collection of stuffed animals and they wanted to know what this was and I said oh this is from when I was a kid I was probably about your age and um, this is uh, my, one of my stuffed animals. His name is Waldo. And they were fascinated to see a stuffed animal. They have their special stuffed animals. They were fascinated to see a stuffed animal from my childhood. And, um, and so I said, hey, guys, you, you, can, you can have it. You can, it. It can be yours. And they're like, no, this is, that's your stuffed animal, Dad. No, you've, you've got to keep it. And so I was interesting watching their framework towards me regarding this stuffed animal. I said, no, no, I, I think um, Waldo... I think he would rather be with other stuffed animals like him. He wants to be with your stuffed animals. No, dad, you need to have the stuffed animal. Here, dad, you need to sleep with this stuffed animal. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, okay. And I took it from them and then waited till they left and just kind of threw it in the stuffed animal bin. And um, later that night, I came into my room and there was Waldo sitting on my side of the bed. My kids were insistent that I needed to sleep with my stuffed animal. Why? Because stuffed animals are so important to kids. And no matter how many times I put this in the bin with their stuffed animal, he ends up on my bedside table or my bed. Um, Why? Stuffed animals are important to kids. And if you watch kids with their stuffed animals, you'll be probably reminded to how you handled whether it was a a doll or an action figure or maybe a stuffed animal you had when you were a child. Um, What children do is they take this inanimate object and they animate it, right? They, all of a sudden, it, it comes to life. And they, the, the stuffed animal has a name and it has a personality. Maybe they even give it a little voice. And sometimes there's a whole story and plot line behind it. And it interacts with other stuffed animals. And, and what kids do is they, they bring this little animal to life. And what's kind of interesting about that is that actually teaches us something theologically. Okay, call this stuffed animal theology. Okay, the fact that we do that, the fact that we animate little toys and bring them to life and give them names and give them an identity and and we, we give them personalities and a whole story. The fact that we do that, think about this, we are the only creature in all of the universe and all of the planet that does something like that. We're the only creature that has the mind, that has the creativity, that has the intentionality, that has the impulse to take something inanimate and, and pretend that it is animated and give life to it and give identity to it. And so that is is part of how we are uniquely made in God's image. God is a creator. And so when we do things like that, whenever we create, whether it's painting a painting, playing a song, thinking up something creatively, strategically, or taking a little toy and and making it and pretending with it, anytime we do that, 
The reason that's so instinctual to children is because we're made in the image of God. Okay, stuffed animal theology, but here's why I'm saying all that. If that's how our relationship is with a stuffed animal, I mean, uh, the stuffed animal is inanimate, inanimate until a child gives it a name, gives it a, a, a voice, gives it like a little story, a little personality, an identity. If that's what a child does with an object, what does that say about our relationship to God and God's role in our life? And the answer to that question, it's such a rich, important question, understanding that dynamic in in relationship to God, that the answer to that question can breathe rest peace into your soul regarding our identities in a way that is so utterly profound, in a way that uh, this truth from the scripture, the way that nowhere else can you find this truth and and the peace that it brings to us deep down into our souls. I want to share this with you and what the Bible says about that dynamic, about our identity and that relationship to God. And we're going to see this in the story of the person of Gideon. We started that, talking about that last week. We're going to get introduced to Gideon. We set the context last week. Now we're going to get introduced to the person of Gideon. Open with me in your Bible or your Bible app to Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11. Judges 6, starting in verse 11. Let me just read this first verse. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take these first few verses very slowly Um, And then we'll we'll move through uh, the rest of this part of the story. But here's what it says. Verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth. That's a tree, a large tree. Sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon, meet Gideon, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, here's Gideon. You've now met Gideon. What is he doing? He's threshing wheat. So it is just after the harvest. He's got the wheat grain and now he's, it says he's beating it. He's threshing it. And what they would do is they would take it to a threshing floor. It would usually be like a large stone, like paved circle out in a field or up even better would be up on a hill. And they're going to take the wheat. They're going to beat it. They're going to thresh it. They're going to toss it in the air. And the point is so that the wind can blow through it and blow the little filaments, the chaff, to blow it off of the wheat so that they can turn it into bread. So he's threshing this wheat. But did you notice where he's threshing it? Is he threshing it on a threshing floor? No. In fact, he has a threshing floor. We'll see um, in in a few weeks later in this story. He actually has a threshing floor, but he's not threshing it there. He's threshing it in a wine press. That's probably a pit that they've dug out. Um, why is he, what, what is it goes on in a wine press? That's where they put grapes and they, they stomp on the grapes to make wine. Why is he down in the wine press threshing wheat? That's not as good threshing wheat in a, in a wine press. It's actually harder to do that. So why is he doing it? He's hiding. 
He's hiding from the Midianites. If you joined us last week, you heard the context of the story. There is a a surrounding people group called the Midianites. And for seven years, they have been oppressing all of Israel. And they have come into Israel, it says, like locusts. There's just tons of them. They're warriors. They're, they're camels. They're, they're, uh, they're co- they've come in and they're, they're spread out all through Israel. And what they're doing, they came in right at harvest time. They've done this for seven years. And they've taken all of the harvest and all of the herds and flocks they can get their hands on. This is devastating. On a macro level, this is economically devastating. An entire nation that has lost its harvest. It has lost its flocks and its herds. So imagine you've inherited herds from your father who inherited them from his father and they have carefully caused that herd or that flock to multiply. You for decades had carefully multiplied your flock or your herd. You're planning on passing it down. It's an investment that you're passing down to your kids. And one day a group of people come and steal all of it. Can you imagine? I mean, this is devastating financially. It's not just devastating financially. It is, it is a safety issue. You've got an occupying army. And lastly, I mean, it's just a matter of survival. How are you going to feed your kids after this harvest that's being stolen? Where do we find Gideon? Gideon is trying to take this wheat. He's quietly threshing it in a wine press so that no one comes along from the Midianite army and steals it from him and his family. Now, one other thing before we go on, it says the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. It says, and he sits under a tree. Now, anytime in the Old Testament, you come across the phrase, the angel of the Lord, you need to read the next verses very carefully because there's a, the identity of that individual could be a couple different things. It might be an angel, might be actually like an angel from heaven, but remember the word angel in, in the original Hebrew, it is not meaning like a creature. The word angel simply means messenger. Now, by the time the New Testament comes along, it's associated with the creatures like a cherub or a seraph, as in cherubim or seraphim, that are the creatures in heaven that attend and serve God that come down to earth sometimes like Gabriel and speak to humans. Sometimes there is an angel appearing. But sometimes when it says the angel of the Lord, it's actually God appearing in human form. It's called a theophany. It's actually God entering in and he's appearing. So it says the angel of the Lord has come and sat under a tree. That means we need to look very carefully. What is the identity of this individual? Is it, uh, is it an angel? Is it actually the Lord? Who is this? Let's read these next verses carefully so we can figure out who this is that is coming to Gideon. Okay, Gideon is threshing in the wine press. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Here's what happens next. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Well, that might seem to be some encouraging words, but let's dig into this a little bit. The Lord is with you. And then he calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. The Hebrew word there is gibor, mighty man. This is not just saying, hey, you're a tough guy. When you see gibor or mighty man in the Old Testament, it's talking about like a legendary hero. 
So when you think of a legendary hero, I mean, we, we have them um, throughout history. You've got uh, legendary heroes, Alexander the Great. You've got Attila the Hun, Joan of Arc. You've got these larger-than-life warriors. In fact, I was just uh, read about one Horatius uh, Cocles, I think his name is Cocles, Horatius Cocles, and he was a, a Roman soldier. He was um, a guard outside of Rome, and uh, an army was coming in to attack Rome, and everyone fled inside the city. There's only one way to get in. It was a bridge that went over a river, and Horatius, as everyone ran in, he stayed out to fight this oncoming army. Okay, so he's standing on the bridge. There's a couple guys that stayed to fight with him. Everyone else fled into the city, and he tells the remaining soldiers, you cut down this bridge. I will stay and fight. I mean, that's, this, is, this is a mighty man right here. He stands on the bridge, and since it creates this funnel, you have this entire army coming onto the bridge, and he is fighting them back, single-handedly keeping them back while they're cutting down the bridge. Eventually, they finish cutting down the bridge. The bridge collapses. He jumps in the water and swims to shore on the Roman side, and, they, and he was, it was so heroic that he single-handedly stopped, uh, that Horatius stopped this army that they built a statue of him in Rome. Now he's called Horatius Cocles because um, Cocles means one-eyed. And the legend is that while he was fighting on the bridge, he actually got wounded and lost his eye and kept fighting to hold back the army. That is a gibor. That is a mighty man. That is a legend. That is a, a hero, a war hero. Okay. When you say gibor in the Old Testament or giborim, mighty men, this is not just talking about tough guys. This is legendary heroes. Just earlier this week, we did, uh, City Rev did an Instagram live post. And we go through as a church, we have something called word habit. And it is a, a Bible reading plan. We read a chapter a day with a very simple way of reading it and applying it to our lives. And uh, we go through that as a church. Um, and so we just finished Genesis. If you're not a part of our uh, word habit, our Bible reading plan, definitely. It's right there on our app. You can sign up. It'll send you a notification every week. You definitely want to jump in on the reading plan. Well, anyway, this week we did an um, Instagram Live recapping Genesis. We just finished Genesis. And we're talking about uh, just answering some questions that, that um, many had as we finished Genesis. And one of them was talking right there in Genesis 6. You had a reference to the Giborim of old, the mighty men of old. And it's these war heroes that have legendary status. David had a group. He had, a, he had an army, but he had a, a group called the Giborim, the mighty men. And if you go to that part of the Old Testament history and read the feats of these warriors, they were incredible, legendary. Okay, that's what gibor, gibor means, or giborim, the plural means. So you've got this angel, the angel of the Lord, whether it's an angel or the Lord, he got the angel of the Lord, he appears to Gideon, and he says, the Lord is with you, and then he calls him, O Gibor of valor, you legendary war hero. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm about to see a legendary war hero, I'm a little bit like underwhelmed by the fact that he's threshing wheat in hiding 
in a wine press at his dad's house. Okay, like I'm just expecting something a little bit more grandiose. Like I'm expecting that he's out on the threshing floor, he's got all the wheat there, and he's just threshing it and just daring one of the Midianite armies to come get him. I mean, just threshing it like, bring it. And that's how this whole, I mean, there's a movie, that's how the story of Gideon would start. He's out there threshing the wheat in front of everyone. I want to see someone come try and take this harvest from me. And then he rallies everybody and he, and he goes charging into battle. Like that's what you're expecting if it's this brave, courageous, valiant Gibor of valor. But nope, he's in hiding. So that's what the angel of the Lord calls Gideon. He says, you are a mighty man of valor. What's Gideon going to say? Let's pick it up in verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? So the first thing Gideon says is, okay, look, guy, um, I don't know who you are sitting under my tree here, but you're saying the Lord is with us. <laughs> I mean, I don't see that anywhere. I mean, we've been calling out to the Lord and, you know, waiting for him to do something. And I, I mean, our forefathers told us how, you know, in Egypt, he, God single-handedly stepped up and just defied defeated Egypt all on his own. Like, why hasn't God done that for, for Midian? And uh, what does he say in response to that? He says, that, that's why I'm here. I'm sending you. You go in this might of yours. But I want you to see one detail because it's significant. Did you notice it said, Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, but then in the response it says, and the Lord said to Gideon, Who's standing there? That's God in the flesh. He's appearing in the flesh to Gideon. The Lord says, that's why I'm here, Gideon. You're going to do it. Go in the might that you have. Now, what kind of might does he have? Okay, well, now we're going to find out. Okay, this is this is going to be good. What's the thing that Gideon has? Maybe he has the reckless bravery that King David does. Okay, maybe he's got that. Maybe he's got like the military wisdom that Joshua had. I mean, put together an incredible battle plan. Okay, maybe he's got that. Maybe what he has is he's got the miraculous like superhuman strength that Samson had. Okay, what's it going to be? This is going to be good. What is the might that he has? This guy who's hiding out in a wine press. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 15. What is this What's the might that he's supposed to go in? Here's what it says, verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. 
What's the strength? The Lord who's standing there tells him, I will be with you. That's all you need. I will be with you. That will be your strength. What Gideon says is he says, uh, how can I do it? You can see that he, he has no faith in himself. How could I do this? He says, I'm the, uh, I'm the least in, in uh, my family. He says, I, I, my clan is, is the least in all of uh, my tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. My, my clan is the weakest. I'm the least. How could I do that? And here's what you see. You, you have on one hand, you have the angel of the Lord saying, you're a mighty man. And on the other hand, you have Gideon saying, I don't think that's who I am. And that's certainly not who my family thinks that I am. Because something's happened in Gideon's life where his family has made it clear he's the weak link. And something's happened in his culture and his society where he's been told that his clan is the weakest. He doesn't have uh, pride for, for the broader uh, network and the kin that he's a part of within his tribe. No, he doesn't. He's been told that it's weakest. That's what society has told him. And so he is questioning now his identity. The Lord has told him that he is one thing, a mighty man, a gibor. And he has said, no, I am not. That's not what my family said. That's not what my society has said back to me. And so here's what his question is. He says, if I have found favor. And this is so profound. I mean, clearly there's someone that's coming from God. He doesn't totally know who this person is yet. There's someone who's come from God saying, God wants to use you to save Israel from Midian. If that's not God saying, no, I've picked you. I've chosen you. I want you. I've selected you. If that's not God showing his favor on Gideon, what else does he want? But Gideon does not have the courage to believe that he's got God's favor on him. Just if, I, if all this is true, like what you're saying, if I've found favor, I need a sign. I need a sign. Let me go get a present. I'm going to come bring it back. Will, will you just stay here till I get back? And the Lord says, yes. All right, let's finish out what happens here. Let's pick it up in verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. By the way, an ephah, that is 22 liters of flour. Okay, that's a lot of carbs. Okay, that's a, a lot of bread. Okay. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth, the tree, and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. I, I think he probably did at that point. Okay, fire miraculously springing up from the rock and then the guy vanishes. You're, you're doing good, Gideon. You're, you're a sharp guy there. He perceived that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace 
be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Orphra, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Gideon runs into his house. He runs in to get a, a present. The actual word there is offering. So think more like offering. He wants to bring an offering before this visitor. He wants a sign. He goes in. This is not just like he's gone for 15 minutes, throws something in the microwave, runs back out. No, he prepares a goat. So it's, he's there probably waiting under the tree. The Lord is all the rest of the day. He prepares a goat, brings the meat with the broth and a whole lot of unleavened bread. Okay, a lot of, lot of bread. And he brings this meal out and the, the Lord says, place it there on the rock. He places it there on the rock, right there under the tree. And the Lord touches it with his staff. Fire <laughs> just flames up from, from the rock out of nowhere, consumes the entire meal, and then the Lord is gone. So he's, he's turned this offering, this meal, into a sacrifice. Do you see this? He's turning it into a sacrifice. And then it's gone. And then Gideon realizes he was standing before the angel of the Lord. But he says, I saw him face to face. That wording is very significant because his ancestor, Jacob, said the same thing when it says he wrestled with God. God was in the form of a man wrestling with him all night one night. And at the end of the night, he pleaded with, with, the, the, um, with the Lord who was wrestling with him. He says, bless me. And that is when God changed the name Jacob to Israel. You think that Gideon knows that story? Oh yeah, he knows that story. He knows how his entire nation got their name. And so he's now repeating the same phrase. I have seen the, the angel of the Lord. He's meaning the Lord face to face. He's offering this sacrifice, this meal, and it, it is the sign of his favor that it, it turns in a flash into a sacrifice. That's a sign that he does have the Lord's favor on him. And so he builds an altar and he calls the altar, um, the Lord is peace. That's Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace because God speaks over him, peace be to you. Don't be afraid, have peace. And speaks this shalom deep into his soul. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. He brings, this person is God in the flesh, standing at this tree. He brings him a meal. The meal turns into a sacrifice. Turns that spot into an altar. The Lord is peace. Jehovah shalom. If this is God in the flesh, then who is this? It's Jesus. This is, this is the Son of God, pre-existent Son of God, appearing in the flesh. This is Jesus talking to Gideon. Jehovah Shalom. It's the actual Prince of Peace standing there, speaking peace into Gideon's life. So what, what is this text trying to tell us here? Here's Gideon the Lord appears to him, Jesus. And, and Jesus 
breathes this peace into him over what he has told Gideon that he is. He's told Gideon that he is a mighty man, a warrior a, of great renown. He's a hero, a legend. He's a mighty man of valor, a gibor. He says, you are a mighty man. And here's what this tells us and what you'll see play out through the rest of the story. If, if the Lord is saying that, that it doesn't matter how Gideon feels. It doesn't matter what his family says. It doesn't matter what society says about him being from the particular part of that tribe. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. If the Lord says that is who he is, then that is who he is. If the one who made Gideon is saying that is who you are. If the one who knows his past, his present, and his future is saying this is who you are, the case is closed. It's settled. That is who he is. The Lord has given Gideon his identity. The truest thing about Gideon is what the Lord says about Gideon. That is the most true thing about him. So the truest thing about me is what God says about me. The truest thing about you is what God says about you, says over you. It's if the one who speaks speaks things into existence, then what he speaks over you is absolutely, necessarily, completely true. When God gives Gideon his identity, nothing can say otherwise about it. The truest thing about Gideon, as in the truest thing about any one of us, is what God says about us. See, we, our, our children have a window into that. You know, like a, a child with, with a, a toy, like a stuffed animal, like... If the child is the one animating this, when I got this as a child from SeaWorld, it was probably sitting there on a rack with a bunch of other stuffed animals that looked exactly like it. But when it came home and it got a name and it, and it got a story, and, and when any child takes a toy and gives it a story and a name and a voice and an identity, that is what it is. That's our relationship to objects. But I am in closer proximity to this object than I am to God. So what, is, what does that mean about my relationship to God? Because I'm actually in the same category as this. I'm a creature. God is in a completely different category. He's the creator. The only being that was not created. He's always existed. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. All, he, is, he is the beginning and the end. If he, how, if he speaks into my life, how can anything say any different? He is the one that gives us his creatures, our identity. So our, our children experience that same dynamic. But you know what's interesting is that is not how our culture, our society approaches this issue. In fact, they approach this way different. They approach this vehemently different, differently. They aggressively differently. There's a complete separate doctrine that in our culture is aggressively taught. And it's taught to us and it's taught to our children. And what's taught is that we find our own identity. It's not that God determines who we are. 
We determine who we are and we're told that we should stand by our own identity and discover our own identity. It's even taught to our children. My, uh, my, my oldest daughter, her favorite movie is Frozen 2. In fact, all of us in the family have memorized the entire soundtrack of Frozen 2. I could break into song right here, but I'm not going to do that to you, okay? So we've watched Frozen 2 a lot. I might be an expert on the plot of Frozen 2 at this point. And here's what I will tell you. The, the main plot of Frozen 2 is the similar plot to most children's movies. It's a main character on a quest to discover who they are. And the answer to the quest is they find that by looking inside. That's what happens to Elsa. My son's uh, favorite movie is Cars 3, Lightning McQueen, Jackson Storm, Cruz Ramirez. And the main point, the main punchline of Cars 3 is this car, this yellow car named Cruz Ramirez, who's always believed in her heart that she is a race car, but society has told her she's not. She's just a trainer. And in the end, she discovers she just has to have the courage to believe what she felt inside about her identity is true. But here's the problem. Our society has gotten us partway there, but has left us in chains. Our society rightly tells us, our culture rightly teaches, don't let society tell you who you are. Don't even let your family tell you who you are. And then it says, you tell you who you are. And it starts to free us but then leaves us in chains and we think that, wow, I'm free to pick my own identity. And I've just realized that that is even a more cruel tyrant because who I need to define myself is not within. I need the one who made me, the one who knows me to define me for me. God speaks my identity into who I am. The truest thing about me, the truest thing about you is what God says about you. Here's how this works. See, identity, we spend our lives inside either trying to prove that there's something that we are or try to prove that there is something that we are not. I try and I spend my life exhausting my life trying to prove that, I, that there's something that I am or prove that there's something that I am not. And maybe often that's a reaction to society. So maybe in your story, you find yourself, you say, look, um, the things that, that I have, the way I look, where I come from, what I've done, what I haven't done, Society looks at that and tells me that I'm not valuable. Society looks at who I am, how I'm made, how I look, where I come from, and it tells me that I'm not going to amount to anything. It looks down on me. It's biased against me. And so if that is what I'm letting define me, then I'm going to spend my life proving that that is not true. No, I am this. I, I am valuable. That is not true. But the flip side is just as damaging. You might be someone that all around you, all the people around you have had high expectations on your life. Maybe you were the valedictorian or you were always top of your class or you were a great athlete and this and that and constantly these voices in your mind saying, oh, it's going to be, I can't wait to see what you're going to do. You're going to do great things. This person's going to do great things. And that has harnessed you with the yoke of constantly trying to prove, yes, what they think I am, I actually am. 
And so either way, you, you spend your life exhausting yourself trying to prove that either there's something you are not or there's something that you are by what society puts on you. It's just like Gideon. Gideon said, well, my, my society doesn't expect much from me because of the clan that I come from in, in my tribe. Society told him that he wasn't worth anything. God freed him from that. But sometimes it's not what society says about us. Sometimes it's what our family said about us. Man, there's, there's something about family that has just such a direct line to shaping our identity. Parents have an awesome responsibility and task of shaping the identity of their children. And so maybe for you, the uh, identity that you've grown up with your, your family, it's maybe similar to Gideon. Gideon... He said, I'm the weakest of my family. Something in his family had told him that all his life. Maybe that's what you've heard. You've grown up always being told that you're a disappointment, being told that you're not valuable, being told that you're not going to amount to anything, that there's not really any expectations, or maybe just all around just disinterest in your life. Maybe it's not even those words that were spoken, but just a general tone in your family towards you, one of neglect or abandonment. And so it's left you thinking, your family has left you fighting an identity that you're not valuable. And so you've spent your life exhausting yourself saying, no, I'm going to prove that I am valuable. I'm not a disappointment. I'm going to prove that I'm not a disappointment. I'm going to prove that I'm this. Or maybe the family put a lot of expectations. Maybe you have older siblings that are very successful or parents that are very successful. And you've spent your life trying to prove that, look, I am too. Look, I can do it too. Look, just like you did this and just like you wanted this for me. See, look, look at all I've accomplished. And so maybe you've exhausted your life and deep down in the deep recesses of who you are with your identity, you've either, your family has made you either prove that there's something that you are or something that you are not and you're exhausting yourself. And you know what? Our society tries to free us from that too. But there's another thing that Gideon's struggling with. He's struggling with what he feels about himself. And see, this is where society leaves us. Now, see, just stay there. You figure out your identity for yourself. And this is the most cruel taskmaster of all of them. Because we inside, trying to prove that we're not reacting to anything else, but we're just trying to prove who we are. We know who we want to be, and we've got these expectations. I've got expectations of success. I've got expectations of, of popularity. I've got expectations of this or that or this or that. But those personal expectations can be so crushing. They can just crush our souls. So that expectation, I've got to be so successful. I've got to amass this amount of wealth. And so that turns someone into a workaholic. Or I've got to be proved that I'm, that I'm liked. And so that person obsesses over social media just waiting to be liked. Or I've got to prove that I'm beautiful because I, I believe that about myself. And so someone's uh, obsessed about their, their physique or obsessed about their clothes or obsessed about their image. And that can absolutely crush us. But see, what this passage, what the word of God is freeing us out of, is there's something even greater. Let your creator, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, who invented you, who defined you, who knows everything about you, let him define for you who he made you to be. The one who knows every single step in your past, knows every word, every thought, and knows everything that's going to happen in your future. Let him define your identity. Just provide it for you and let that breathe peace into your soul. 
I mean, wouldn't it be incredible if something like that could be true? Wouldn't it be incredible if that gnawing, clawing drive to address who I think I'm supposed to be be replaced with an identity that's placed on you by your creator with something that he says, this is who you are and nothing, no mistake, no misstep, no failure, no disappointment, nothing can change who I declare you to be. Wouldn't it be amazing if that was true? Wouldn't it be amazing if the identity that your creator speaks over you is so profound that it makes anything else in this world just fade in comparison? Wouldn't it be incredible if that was true? Can I read to you, Christian, what the scripture says about you? Here's the identity that, that the Lord has breathed over you. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's who he has made you to be. Let me just read this over. Can you just receive this? This is who you are. Not, it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what your family has told you you are. It doesn't matter what society tells you. This is the truest thing about you. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What he's saying is because of Jesus Christ, you're something brand new. You've been born again. You're fresh. You, the, the past is all gone. You're not defined by your worst moments. You're not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by the, by the previous things that you've done. You are something brand new. You say, oh man, well that, that's good news. I'd like to be something brand new. Then I'll, I'll serve God all, all my life. And, and yes, that's right. We, he makes us new and then we serve him. But it's more than that. Look what he says. This is Jesus' words. He says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Do you realize how God views you? Not just as a new creation, not just as a servant. He's made you into, he calls you friend. You are someone he wants to be with. You're someone he would choose to be with. That is who almighty God says that you are. But it's more than that. You're more than a new creation, more than a friend. Look what it says in 1 John 3. It says, see what kind of love the father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Do you know that you're a new creation? You're a friend of God, but you're a child. He calls you his child. He's adopted you, you in. You belong to him. He's protective over you. He's your father that provides for you. You are his child. You say, look, part of me wants to believe that, but you know, honestly, I, if I'm a child, I, I'm that child that needs a lot of discipline. If I'm a child, I'm that child that's a prodigal. It's, I'm that child that's, that's run astray. I'm that child that's hard for him to be with. No, that's not who you are. Listen to what kind of child he goes on in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall be, see him as he is. He says, I know that you're not perfect, but you are my beloved child. 
Uh, I love being with you. I can't stop thinking about you. If he was on earth, he'd be showing pictures of you to anyone he walked by. He loves you. You're his beloved child. And you know what it means if you are his child? Think about this. If you are the child of the king of the universe, do you know what that means about you? This is who God says that you are. Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Do you know who you are? You're an an heir with Christ to this universe. You say, look, my circumstances don't look like that right now. That's what he says. You're walking in the path of Jesus. We may walk through suffering, but we'll be glorified with him in heaven and one day reign over, over all that is along with Jesus. You are an heir. You're in the royal family of almighty God. You are something brand new that this world can't even comprehend because of what Jesus has done for you. Here's the question. Do you have the courage to believe who you are? Do you have the courage to believe your identity? Because many of us in our hearts are saying, if I have found that kind of favor, I'm going to need a sign. I'm going to need a sign for that kind of thing. Well, what's the sign? Well, Gideon brought out a meal to Jesus standing at a tree, and that meal was a sacrifice. And that same Jesus who touched that meal turned it into a sacrifice. Many years later, on the night before he would be nailed to a cross. You know, the, the Bible calls a cross a tree. Before he was nailed to a tree, he'd have a meal with his disciples. And he'd explain that that meal is a symbol of a sacrifice, his sacrifice, the broken bread and the poured out wine. He'd be saying, I am the sacrifice. He is the sign of how much favor God has on you. He loves you so much. He'd send Jesus himself to die in your place. If that's not enough of a sign to show how much he loves you and show you who you are, there couldn't be anything that would prove it to you. That's how much he loves you. Can you find peace from Jehovah Shalom today? Can you just find peace in your weary soul wrestling, trying to prove who you are or prove who you are not and just hear the identity from the one who invented you. Hear that today. Some of you say, look, how do I know that I'm a child of God? How can I do that? How can I, how can I get that new identity? The pathway to that is Jesus Christ. Accept what Jesus did. He died on the cross to pay for your sins, rose again so you could live forever in heaven. You can become a child of God today. Do you want to take that step? Find rest for your soul. Find your true identity, the one given to you by your creator. I want to lead you in this prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes wherever you're at, wherever you're at, and maybe you're in a living room, on a couch, sitting somewhere. Just take a second and just bow your head. And if you want to take that step, just say, Jesus, I believe that you are my savior. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying for me and showing me, not only paying for my sins, you showed me who I am. You've given me a new identity. I will walk in you. In your name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, that is the greatest decision you could have possibly made. Your eternity 
is changed. You'll spend forever in heaven because of what Jesus did for you. And if that was your step, we want to celebrate that with you. And, and we need to know about it. We want to know about it. So right there, you can just click on that banner that says cityrev.org faith. It's also there in the comments. Just click on that. Take a moment, fill that out, and just celebrate that you became a child of God. We want to send you a Bible wherever you're at. Send you a Bible and celebrate with you. So take a moment and click that link now. Church, we're going to close with a song celebrating that he is the provider. If we are his child, that means he is our father. That means he is driven. That means he desires. That means that deep in his heart, he wants to provide for us. And we know that he is first and foremost with our salvation. And every single day, he is with us. Let's worship together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.